Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome. Uh, it's really nice to see so many people here, especially on a, a nice sunny day uh, when it's such a nice place to be. Um, my name is Matt Dixon. I'm from the IPR here. It's uh, a real pleasure to welcome you and to welcome uh, Beth Bacody and John Goldthorpe uh, from Oxford who are going to be discussing their book, uh, Social Mobility and Education in Britain, Research, Politics and Policy. Uh, I'd also like to say at this stage uh, thank you to our partners from uh, the Centre for Analysis of Social Policy in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences here uh, for uh, co-hosting this event with us and uh, making it happen uh, this evening. Uh, so, by way of introduction, Beth Cody is an Associate Professor in Quantitative Social Policy and a Professorial Fellow at Nuffield College at the University of Oxford, and she's also Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford uh, Martin School. Beth's previously uh, worked as the Research Director of the National Child Development Study uh, and the British Cohort Study. If anyone's worked on the kind of uh, our British cohort studies from 1958 and 1970. Uh, Bess was previously research director uh, for both those studies in the Centre for Longitudinal Studies at the Institute of Education and the University of London. Prior to this, Bess was a senior research fellow at the Department of Sociology at the University of Bamberg in Germany. Uh, she's also been a Max Weber uh, postdoctoral fellow at the European University Institute Florence and uh, was head of section of social stratification in the Department of Social Statistics in the Hungarian Central Statistics Office in Budapest. So uh, incredible wealth of experience uh, in this area. John Goldthorpe, um, I'm tempted to say he needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him an introduction anyway. Um, John's Emeritus uh, Fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, has previously held positions at University of Leicester, at uh, King's College and at University of Cambridge. He was formerly the editor of the journal Sociology and was instrumental in uh, creating the European Sociological Review as well as, as the formation of the European Consortium for Sociological Research. Uh, so uh, sociologists owe John great debt for those things. Um, and this evening, uh, John and Bess are going to discuss, as I say, their, their new book we've got here. We've got flyers on the uh, seats for a, a discounted rate to get hold of a copy of the book. And in this book, they identify a marked disconnect between what sociological research tells us about social mobility and education and what the kind of general policy and politics discussion is. So um, please join me in welcoming John and Bess. Uh, so thank you very much for, this, for, for the kind invitation and this nice um, in, introduction. And indeed, what we will talk about today is, is our book, um, entitled Social Mobility and Education in Britain, Research, Politics and Policy. And what I will do, I will kind of summarise the main findings and the main, main policy messages based on our findings. And then we are looking forward to, to, uh, to the discussion with you. So what are the motivations um, uh, beyond this book? So decades now in, in British politics, social mobility is a sort of hot topic, increasing inequality of opportunity and increasing social mobility in the context of rising inequality of condition has been a shared goal 
across um, across the political spectrum in this country, and there is an odd, another uh, uh, kind of common feature of, of, of policymakers and poli politicians in that that educational policy, edu different kinds of educational policies, um, uh, are seen as crucial to achieve this goal of, of, of greater mobility and greater inequality of opportunity. And as uh, Matt um, already highlighted, we kind of challenge this um, view in this book. And um, our main main argument is that there is a there is a serious disconnect between the discussion of social mobility um, in sociological research um, and finding um, about social mobility in sociological research and discussion of social mobility in in, in policy and media media circles. So what do we do in this book? Um, we don't do a lot of things. Uh, and what we try to do is, is, is to bring together um, research uh, finding results from uh, extensive um, uh, research what we have done mainly based on, on, on these British birth score studies that uh, Matt already highlighted, but we also used other um, kind of high quality data set for our purposes as you will see um, later on. I would say um, that this book, our work, um, uh, has two kind of defining characteristics, as it were. First, we treat social mobility in terms of social class rather than um, income, uh, as we argue in the books that treating social mobility um, via class perhaps is the better way to capture intergenerational transmission of inequalities. Um, and the second defining characteristics of our work is, is that we make clear systematic distinction between uh, the so-called absolute and relative rates of mobility. I will go into a bit more detail about these two defining characteristics um, of our work uh, within a second. So as said, the first important um, uh, thing and um, in, uh, defining characteristics of our work is that we treat social mobility via social class. So what is this social class? Um, of course, there are different approaches to defining social class. Our approach is based on employment relations. So we, we, we work with a schema. Uh, that is called NSSEC, the National Statistics Socioeconomic Classification, that is based, that is based um, workers' um, employment um, relations. And it has different kinds of aggregations, but we mainly work with the seven-class uh, category version of the class schema that we put it on the slide. Um, you see that what is class one is kind of high, higher managerial, high, pro, higher professional um, occupations or employment relations. And in the middle, uh, you see um, routine non-manual workers, the self-employed, small employees down the to the routine, routine uh, occupations, and we listed some sort of example occupation, uh, occupation in each of these classes. But the, the main thing that these occupations 
that we listed there and many more could be treated only as a kind of approximation to the employment relations that we try to capture via these occupations. So the key word is that this class schema is based on uh, workers' employment relations. Um, and it has been shown in past research um, not just by us, but uh, by other, other researchers, that social class treated in a way, as I explained and as I showed, can be taken um, not only highly and significantly related to um, individuals, workers um, and families' current income level, but also to other important um, um, attributes, characteristics of their working lives, such as um, um, income luck or income, in, in secu in, income security, income insecurity, um, longer term income prospect, income stability and income instability. So let me just illustrate this um, 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 within the next uh, couple of minutes. So what you see here in this picture, in this figure, is, is, is the relative risk of being unemployed by, by class positions. So you see in the x-axis of the figure these seven classes that I showed you on the previous slide, just a reminder, class one, these are the most advantaged people, high professionals and high managers, and class seven, the least advantaged people in the labor market, the routine non-manual workers. And what you see is, is a clear class gradient in the risk of unemployment. Um, um, this based on the labor force survey in, in 2014, but if we replicate um, uh, this um, um, figure for an earlier period or some later period, we essentially um, get the same trends. So that is a clear glass gradient, and those um, at the bottom doing a lot worse than those at the top in terms of risk of unemployment, taking into account other characteristics of, 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 of the workers, of the people. As said, a social class um, is also related to um, short-term um, income stability or income instability. Uh, in the form, uh, and this income stability, income instability derives from the differences in employment uh, relations in the form of uh, uh, typical differences in the methods of payment. Uh, more specifically, this uh, figure shows the variable components of average gross weekly earnings for men in full-time employment, again, across these seven classes. Um, uh, there are two components or two kinds of variable components that we took into account here. One is the overtime pay or ship premium and ship premium peace rates, and the other the bonuses, commissions and the like. And you see uh, quite stark differences across, um, across um, classes in terms of these variable components of earnings. Um, 
uh, more specifically those in the working classes in class six and class seven, especially you see much more likely to have overtime pay or ship premia, this kind of um, um, variability of their payment, while at the other extreme of the class distribution for those in the salariat, the professional and managerial salariat, we scarcely see that, but among them the variable components comes in the form of performance-related indicators in addition to their basic salaries. So the bottom line is that there is the class structure, income stability and insta income instability in a quite significant and um, uh, striking uh, way. Further, um, we show in the, in, in the book um, that um, class structure and related quite strongly to long-term income prospects of workers. So what this uh, graph shows is, is the median gross weekly earnings by social class at different ages of the workers. And you see at early age not much difference shows up across classes, uh, but as people getting kind of older, um, the salariat, the most advantage kind of shooting off, right? And then we see a sharp increase um, in earnings for them, while at the bottom uh, for people in routine um, non-manual routine manual classes, uh, this sort of age-wage curve is quite flat. So at a later age, say at age, um, uh, around age 50, there is quite a big marked difference between classes in, in their median gross weekly earnings. So this figure is about men, again, in full-time employment, but essentially we get the same picture uh, for women. And if we repeat this exercise for uh, using data from the 70s or 80s, 90s, essentially we get the same pattern. So not much change in terms of how strongly class uh, structures um, earnings uh, across the life course of, 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 of people. Um, finally, um, we show in the book that class is markedly differentiated by wealth, financial wealth as well. So again, um, we show uh, how it looks like across the, for, for different um, uh, age groups of, of, of people. Um, again, uh, the bottom line message is that there are big, big differences across, across classes. Um, household, where the head of household is in class one, um, among the higher managerial and higher professionals, you see a surge of, of, of wealth, right, across their, um, of, across different age groups, while, while household, where the head is in this class seven, among the least advantaged, as it were, in the labor market, we scarcely see any, any increase in net wealth. Uh, of course, the whole book uh, is, is about the consequences of, 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 of social class and um, this kind of um, um, 
differences across, across class and how intergenerational inequalities in terms of class um, looks like and changes uh, changed in this country. Uh, but before going into this, um, I would like to show another uh, quite striking figure uh, about the wider consequences of class positions um, in this country. And as you see, this figure shows that class markedly differentiates individuals' life chances in a quite literal way because this figure shows the risk of mortality, a standardized mortality rates by class position, and you see huge differences across, across classes for both men and, and, and women. So class captures this kind of differences in a very, very good way. So I hope that I kind of persuaded you that class is a good measure. We, mo we don't say in the book that income is not a good measure, but we argue that class um, is, a, is a good measure uh, to investigate, and a good way to investigate um, social mobility. Um, as said, um, the other important defining characteristics of our work is that we make clear distinction between absolute and relative mobility. So what is absolute mobility? Let's start with, 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 with that. So absolute mobility rate, uh, rates refer to the proportion of people in different class positions as compared to their parents, right? So it's a, it's, it's a very simple, um, a simple definition. Um, basically, we work with percentages. We calculate the proportion of people who end up in different class position as compared to their parents, and we divide this proportion um, into uh, people who experienced upward movement, upward mobility as compared to their parents. In other words, they ended up in a better class position than their parents and people who experienced downward mobility uh, as compared to their parents, um, they ended up in a worse um, class position using this seven category classification that I introduced a few minutes ago. Um, so how does this look like? Um, over time. Um, so one kind of myth in, in, in policy circle and in media is uh, that mobility is in decline in this country, right? So we have a serious mobility problems because mobility is declining. So then the first question is that we try to address in the book, is it, is it, is it the case? It, it, Mobility has mobility declined across um, across the past decades. So what this this graph shows is 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 the total mobility rate and the upward and the downward uh, mobility compo uh, components of this total mobility rates for different cohorts. Right. So we in in the left hand panel of the figure. 
um, you see old cohorts, right? These are people who were born before the Second War. And um, this bit of the figure, based on the so-called Nuffield Mobility Studies conducted by Joan, um, in the early 70s. So it was not day before yesterday, but that's a very, very uh, useful um, a data set, a data resource. So we calculated these um, uh, three mobility rates, the total mobility rates, the upward mobility rates, and the downward mobility rates. In this study, they only used three classes, so we were not able to use the seven-class schema that I introduced. But in the right-hand panel, we did use the seven-class schema because the right-hand panel, based on the British birth cohort studies, three of them, plus we supplemented these three British birth cohort studies with a sort of quasi-birth cohort study, study based on uh, the Understanding British Society survey in order to um, have some information for, for, for more recent uh, cohorts, basically. Uh, so we can't really compare the level of social absolute rates across these two panels of the figure, but for our purposes, we are, what we are interested in is, is not the level, but what's happening across these cohorts. Right? What's happening over time? Because the argument is that there is a decline in social mobility, and we would like to challenge this um, this means, as it were. So, when it comes to the total mobility rate, i.e., the proportion of people who ended up different class position as compared to their parents, we don't see change at all. So there is an stability in this proportion of people who um, um, ended up different class position than their parents. But what changed quite significantly is the relative importance of the upward and the downward mobility. So what you see here is, is an increase, a steady increase in the proportion of people who moved up Right? More and more people experienced upward mobility across these cohorts, and less and less, fewer and fewer people uh, sorry, experienced downward mobility. So there is a decline in downward mobility and increase in upward mobility. But if you look at this right-hand panel of the figure, you see that the picture is different. What we see across these more recent cohorts is that the upward mob the proportion of the upwardly mobile is declining, right? Uh, while the proportion of the downwardly mobile is increasing, right? So this is why we think that we do have a mobility problem in that that more people experience downward mobility. So social mobility is not in decline, but the problem is that upward mobility is, is, is falling while downward mobility is rising. So the next figure shows the same story for women. Uh, essentially, uh, we don't have um, data um, uh, based on this old, inverted comma, Nuffield mobility study, 
um, this is why this part is blank, but if, if we look at this part, the right-hand panel, you see essentially the same pattern that uh, upward mobility is falling while downward mobility is uh, rising. But then, of course, you ask the, the obvious question, why do we say that, um, that trend in upward and downward mobility? And um, the main argument is, based on our research, but not only based on our research, but other, other sociologist um, research, is that the change in absolute mobility uh, can be explained primarily by the changing structure, uh, changing, changing class structure, how this class structure is changing over time. Um, and then this figure tried to illustrate this, what's happening in the class structure across these cohorts in this country. So what you see here is, is, is the class distribution across these um, four birth cohorts, uh, parents and respondents, only men, but the same picture if we, if we plot women. More specifically, what we put here is the proportion of people coming from um, sal salariate background, professional and managerial background. This is this dark blue, and the proportion of people who end up in that kind of class position at a later stage in their life course. So what you see that more and more people coming from um, professional managerial, professional and managerial background. And this means that there is an increase uh, in the proportion of people who are at risk of downward mobility, right? Because more and more people coming from this advantaged background, this obviously must mean that they are, more and more people are in the risk of experiencing downward mobility. And you remember from the past, uh, from the last slides, that this is what we have seen. We have seen an increase in the proportion of people who were downwardly um, uh, mobile. And you also see uh, it's partly happening not only because more and more people coming from sort of good background, but because, because the growth of that kind of salariat occupation slowed down for these more recent, uh, more recent uh, cohorts, meaning that there is not enough room basically at the top. Uh, so this graph kind of illustrates that the trends in absolute mobility, upward and downward mobility, very much dependent on what's happening in the occupational and the class structure across time. Um, right, so let's now move on um, and let's have a look what's happening at the relative rates of social mobility because, again, I just would like to remind you that 
that's really important and the kind of defining characteristics in, this, in our book that we make a clear-cut distinction between absolute and relative mobility. So what is this relative mobility? Uh, let's sort out the definition first before, before showing any trends in relative class mobility. So relative mobility is, is essentially the strength of association between paper social origins and social destination considered net of any marginal, marginal distribution uh, or changes in the marginal distribution. So if this kind of pure association between paper social ori uh, origin and destination is, is, is a weak, then we talk about higher level of relative rates. If the association between people's origin and destination is strong, then we talk about lower level of relative, relative mobility, or in other words, fluidity. Fluidity is the other term used for the same thing. The social relative mobility rates, social fluidity is the same thing. So how to measure this kind of stickiness of, of social origins or this pure association between origins and destination? So we use um, a statistical term, it's called odds ratio in a, in a statistical table. Uh, but because we have seven classes, seven classes for origins, seven classes of de for destination, a seven, we work with a seven by seven mobility table. This means loads of odds ratios. So in that table, we have 441 of that odds ratios that kind of capture this pure association between origin and destination. So we had to resort to some kind of statistical method that could kind of summarize these, uh, these loads of information coming from these odds ratios. So this statistical method that we use co is, is called log-linear modeling, and it's widely used in this area of, of research among sociologists. So we fit different kinds of um, log-linear modeling and I don't want to go into nitty-gritty details about, about, what, about this log-linear modeling, but what I try to do is kind of summarizing, giving you a sort of summary of what these models um, try to capture. So basically, we work with two models, um, two statistical models. The first one is called common association model. Um, and this model recognizes that the distribution of class origin and class uh, destination changes over time or across cohorts, but the model assumes that this association between origins and destination net of changes in the marginal distribution is exactly the same in each cohort. In other words, there is no cross-cohort variation in relative mobility rates. So this association between people's origin and destination is identical, is the same in every single cohort in our, uh, in our data, right? Uh, so basically this is what this so-called common association model assumes. But against this, 
um, we have another model, which is called Uniform Difference Model. Um, so this model allows us to test for the possibility that all these odds ratios that define a mobility table, the origin and destination association, are stronger or weaker in one cohort than in another one, right? Uh, with some, by some common factor. So, in other words, the model allows for the possibility that the relative rates of social mobility are uniformly more or less equal from one cohort as compared to another cohort. So, there, there are differences in relative rates across cohorts, and these differences between cohorts come out in a sort of uniform way. Either the, sort of in one cohort, the odds ratios um, or this association between origin destination is stronger or weaker. So basically, these are the two models that we use our purposes uh, to measure uh, relative rates and changes in relative rates. Because the emphasis, again, is on changes. Because the sort of myth um, among policy circles and politicians is that the mobility is in decline in this country. So is it the case? We have seen that with absolute mobility, we can't say that, but we identified another kind of mobility problem, the unfavorable change of, of upward and downward mobility rates. So here, the question arises, relative, has it, has relative rates, have relative rates declined across, across cohorts? And the sort of answer is no. We don't see much change at all, actually, in relative rates across um, these three cohorts that I that we put uh, I put uh, we put uh, in the in the, the picture so this um, so what we what we um, plotted here um, is is this so-called unity parameter so statistical sort of summary measure from this modeling exercise that I explained and if it were if relative mobility um, was in decline that we would see that we would see an increase in these dots. So these dots would be somewhere here and these dots would be somewhere there. But what you see is no change at all, right, for men. So we could say based on this um, that there is essential stability in relative rates of mobility across these countries. When it comes for women, women are always a bit more complicated, um, as it were, than men, because of, the, of course, the more complex um, uh, career employment structure, etc., family um, reconciliation of family and, and, and uh, employment. So what we see that if we, if we take all, all women in our data set, we do see some increasing fluidity, right? So in, into a kind of favorable direction. So we could say that, yeah, that is actually an increase in social fluidity if we look at all women. But we had a more sort of look uh, at the matter. And if you focus only women 
who have always worked full time, so women who are basically the strongest labor market attachment, that the picture is fairly similar to what we see for men, right? Uh, no significant change across these cohorts in relative rates. So basically the bottom line based on this picture is that we would argue that there is stability in relative rates across time in, 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 in Britain. Um, so we have seen that um, there is a stability in the level of relative mobility, but the next question that we turn to in the book, um, does this mean that there is stability in the pattern of um, relative mobility across time? In other words, is it the case that these relative um, mobility rates um, um, come out in the same way or show up, show up in the same way um, in, in different, uh, different cohorts. Uh, and what we did to investigate this issue, again it's, 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 it's explained uh, in the book, we used a, another kind of statistical model, uh, we did a lot of statistics in this book as you might have gathered by no, um, that is called topological models and what we try to do with this kind of modeling, we try to model this 7 by 7 mobility table as parsimoniously as possible using the very, very few um, uh, parameters in order to capture, in order to capture the pattern of, of, of relative rates or in other words, the, how the inequality in relative rates uh, come about. And what we have found is, 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 is stability that we basically could use exactly the same kinds of model across these three birth cohorts, uh, suggesting that not only the level, but also the pattern of, of, of relative um, mobility or mobility chances essentially stable across time. So this figure kind of illustrates the emerging pattern of, of, of mobility, relative mobility chances or inequality in mobility chances. Um, so this figure shows a selective set of odds ratios among this 441. We only show 21 that is called symmetrical um, odds ratios and you see if the shading is, 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 is darker this means that the odds ratio is bigger okay uh, so you see that bit here in this um, region of the mobility table among uh, adjacent classes we see very light patterning uh, suggesting that for these mobility transition, almost perfect mobility is approximated. So it's very easy to move across these classes, basically. So just a reminder, class one is the higher managerial and professional class. Class two is a lower managerial and professional class. Class seven is a kind of routine, non-manual class. So the movement across these classes is fairly, fairly easy across generations. But look at here, 
if we look at this region of, of the mobility table, we see quite dark, um, dark shading, and, and this is red uh, because this is the biggest, um, biggest odds ratio. So if this odds ratio is around 20, so what does this mean that this odds ratio 20? This means that somebody who comes from a higher salariate background, a higher managerial and professional background, this person is 20 more times uh, more likely to end up uh, at the top classes than somebody who comes from the bottom. So coming from bottom is extremely unlikely and very, very difficult to end up at the, at the top. Uh, and this uh, rigidity of the pattern has not changed at all across, across cohorts um, based, on, based on our results. So the bottom line uh, take-home message is that for some transition, um, almost the state of perfect mobility exists, but in other cases, especially in case of long-range mobility, inequality and relative chances are extreme, uh, really, really big. So then we established the trends, what's happening um, in mobility in this country. So we have seen, uh, we have seen that both the, there is a stability both in the level and the pattern of relative mobility rates. So the second part, the second half of the book is, okay, what is the role of education in that? Okay? Why, why do we say this stability in relative mobility, both in the level and the pattern of relative mobility? Is it something to do with education or something to do with something else? Um, so obviously education plays a very, very important role in, uh, um, in determining who is mobile, right? Um, in other words, which individual is mobile. But it doesn't necessarily mean that more education means more mobility at a societal level, right? For the individual level, this is extremely important, not necessarily at a societal level, right? Um, because in order to, for education, to lead to more mobility, certain conditions should be met. What are these conditions that should be met? So we try to illustrate these conditions using this triangle. So it's a widely used so-called OED triangle in that kind of research among sociologists. So you see, in order to education, um, to increase social mobility, uh, first, we should see that the association people's social origin and educational attainment should decrease over time. In other words, social origin should play less and less role in what kind of education people get. Okay? Uh, but that's not enough. Um, it also should be the case that education should the association, the link between educational credentials and destination positions in terms of occupation and in terms of class should be stronger and stronger across, um, <coughs> across time, across cohorts, 
In other words, education should be the key in what kind of labour market positions people end up. Education should be the most important thing in that. And third, we should see that the so-called direct effect of social origin, direct because it doesn't go through education, uh, should decline across time, right? Why? Because education must become more and more important in order to determine where you end up in the labour market. So this should mean that other um, things that could be linked to your social origins, such as network, connection, etc., should matter less and less. So if we see that kind of scenario in this country, i.e. if we see that origin matters less and less for education, but education matters more and more for labour market destination, and we see a decline in this direct effect of origin, that yes, this is, leads to this situation that education means more mobility at societal level. So is it the case? So we investigated each kind of side of, of this OED triangle, and this is the sort of results that I, we tried to summarize um, in, in, in this slide. So we see no change, basically. So it's a rather boring story, you may say, yeah, no change, these people never find any change, anything. <laughs> but what, this is what we found um, based on our, I would say, thorough research. So we find no change in the role of social origin in determining people's educational attainment. Uh, and we didn't find that education becomes sort of more of a class destiny across cohorts. Uh, so education doesn't become more and more important in determining when you end up in the labor market. And we find finally persistent direct effect of social origins due to um, networks, connections, and cognitive ability, non-cognitive attributes uh, of various kinds. So we, what we find is no much change um, in, these, in these associations across time. So let me just illustrate one of these arrows in the OED triangle, the association between social origin and education, right? So this is, of course, huge literature exists on this. Um, so what we plot here is, is the probability of attaining at least upper secondary um, level of qualification by, by social origins, taking into account people's cognitive ability measured fairly early stage um, in their life around age 10 across four cohorts spanning basically 50 years, uh, five decades. Uh, and we plotted these probabilities. So if you just look at the picture, you see not much change, again, across time. So we see, of course, that brighter people, let's put it that way, so people with higher level of cognitive ability are much more likely to attain this level of qualification. That is not a big surprise, right? This is what you expect. But we also see that regardless of people level of cognitive ability, social origin matters a lot, right? Just if you just look at 
disk up, you say for paper, for the brightest paper, where the cognitive ability level is the, in the highest um, fifth uh, <coughs> or quintile, if the person came from um, the least advantaged parental background, he actually would take into account not only parental class, but also parental education and parental income, and we define the, the parental class, the parental group in that way. Uh, this person is roughly 40 percentage point less likely to attain this qualification than someone coming from the most advantaged background. So 40 percentage point difference is quite, quite a lot, right, for somebody who is really bright. And this 40 percentage point difference is, is, is here, here, uh, is there, here, and basically that 40 percentage point difference is here as well. Uh, so no, no change at all. Um, in these um, in these disparities uh, between people coming from different backgrounds over time, you see the same pattern for women, right? So this figure just illustrates this persistency um, that we found in the role of of education. In in this case, the role of social origin in determining people's educational attainment, and finally. Um, the, the last kind of um, uh, myth, um, as it were, that we try to attend this book is, 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 is about the place of Britain in a sort of international league table of social mobility, because, because, because the myth is that Britain must be a low mobility society. Okay, is it the case? Britain is a low mobility society. Actually, sociologists never believed that, uh, and John could talk about it, this a lot more. Uh, that Britain was always a kind of middling, um, had a kind of middling status in this kind of league table. So we investigated this issue as well using a uh, using a big, big comparative um, data set. Um, and what we found in terms of these this two figures summarize the results regarding absolute mobility. So the first one, this top panel, is, is the proportion of, is the total mobility rates. You may remember that I defined the total mobility rates earlier as a percentage of people who end up different class position as compared to their fathers. It's, it's between 70 and 80 percentage, point, percentage in, in, in European countries, and Britain is here, so in, in, in a quite good position. Um, and you may remember the figure from the, from the previous slide, it's a bit higher than 70% of people who end up different class position than their parents. But when it comes to the upward and the downward components of total mobility rates, Britain is not all that good position because this country is in this in this country group, in this middle middle country group, uh, in other words, among countries when there is not all that much difference um, between upward and downward mobility rates. Um, why, for instance, here you see countries that still have higher upward mobility rates than downward mobility rates, such as Germany. 
And when it comes to the relative mobility rates, again, we wouldn't say that Britain is, is in a very is in a low mobility society. So what you see here is, is just briefly, is a kind of league table of relative mobility rates um, in Europe, basically. So these countries here in these black dots are countries um, where the relative mobility rates defined exactly the same way as using exactly that kind of modeling that I, I introduced before. These are the countries, not very mobile countries, where this is why they call it less social fluidity, where the social fluidity is quite low. Uh, and these are the countries where the social fluidity is relatively high. And you see Britain is among these, right? Uh, among these um, greater social fluidity, inverted comma, um, countries. Uh, just sort of in a, in, in a bracket, it's a bit misleading actually calling this as a leak table because we did a very thorough pairwise comparison of the mobility rates across countries and you see in many cases there are actually no significant difference in relative mobility rates across these countries and across these countries. So basically the 30 European countries can be divided in two big sets low mobility countries and higher mobility countries in terms of relative mobility. But for our purposes, the bottom line is that we, we can't say, based on this result, that Britain is a low mobility society. Right, so these were just a kind of taster, as it were, of our book um, and, um, and a summary of the main results, I um, mean, empirical findings. But the question that arises, and we try to, um, try to t attend this in the conclusion chapters, is what then follows for policy from all this, right? Um, so when it comes to absolute mobility, again, the, as you remember, the problem is, 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 is that um, uh, upward and downward, the relative importance of upward and downward mobility is changing in not a favorable direction because downward, the downward mobility component is increasing while the upward mobility component is, is, is increasing. Uh, but if we would like to do something about it, we would like to increase the proportion of people who experience upward mobility, obviously this is what we want to do, increasing equality of opportunity, or in, in other words, changing the relative rates, is, is not a good solution because it would lead to increase not only in upward social mobility, but also in downward mobility, social mobility. This is a mathematical fact that I'm not going into this at that uh, time of the day, but just believe me, this would be a mathematical fact. So that wouldn't be a good way to go about that. But, but you remember that I showed you, and we show in the book, uh, that how the, rel how the absolute rates of mobility changes over time, very much dependent on the class structure, on the job structure, on the occupational structure. So this means that we have to do something about the occupational structure if we would like to kind of um, in see increasing number of people who are upwardly mobile. 
So what we propose is the most effective way of increasing <coughs> upward mobility would be through economic and social policies, uh, not necessarily through uh, educational policies, because in this way we could perhaps renew the expansion of the top classes. In this way, perhaps we could uh, create more room at the top, basically, uh, where people could move into. Uh, but how to do this, uh, obviously it's, it's not easy, so we, in the book we have some ideas and I just listed some uh, of them here, um, so industrial strategy, patient capital, you know, from startups to scale-ups, uh, more investment in environmental initiatives, more investments in RRT, more investments in, in technology transfer, and just simply more investment in public and social policies and the welfare state, right? Uh, in order to, to, to create more top hands job, as it were. So when it comes to relative mobility, uh, what we have shown is that education is not a great leveler that could break the link between inequality of condition and inequality of opportunity. Uh, why? Because parents with superior resources, either economic resources, social resources, or cultural resources, they use their resources as necessary um, in order to um, preserve their children's uh, with competitive edge in the educational systems and in the, in, the, in the labor market. Right? So they would do their best, of course, for their children. Um, so in, 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 in the context of um, um, all kinds of educational reforms and, and the egalitarian educational reforms with egalitarian objectives. And we also, on the top of that, we also show in the book um, that actually further education or lifelong learning is not necessarily increases um, social mobility. It's rather promote actually immobility. Uh, so education is, 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 is not a great leverer. Uh, but, then, but then what? So what, 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 what kind of other policies, if not education policies, what kind of, other, uh, what kind of policies could be um, effective? Uh, or what kind of policies you could think of that could um, increase relative mobility rates? So one, one, one of them that we argue for is is, is, is one possibility is, uh, um, is, is for employers uh, to develop a kind of internal promotion or training policies um, in order to take full advantage of this educationally wasted talent that I showed you in one of, my, one of the previous slides. Um, and this way, basically, to remove unnecessary formal qualification requirements um, and um, to reduce unwarranted, we call it unwarranted credentialists. So through internal promotion training policies, perhaps could be uh, we could we could put more emphasis on that kind of policies um, in addition to um, a formal educational requirement, perhaps. Um, but the end. Um, what we argue for in, in, in the book, that based on our findings, 
um, we should recognize that in all societies, all modern or advanced societies, uh, with the market economy, nuclear family system, and liberal democratic polity, might be a limit to uh, the extent that mobility chances actually can be equalized. And we may, might have already reached this limit of equalization. And then, as this limit is approaching, policies aimed at further equalization um, will, be, will be increasingly politically contested kind. Uh, so social mobility may cease to be a matter on which political consensus prevails in the future. So thank you very much, and we are looking forward to your questions. <laughs>